You're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. And welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. I'm Johnston, and I am joined this week by Jimmy. Hello. And I'm joined by Greg. Stevens. <laughs> Is this you trying to say that you're the boss? If you want to interpret it that way, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's it's this lineup, which means this must be a season by season episode, um, and we've we've hit a bit of a milestone. It's season ten, hooray! So um, we're going to bring back the second and first Doctors for an anniversary special, almost a year too early, and celebrate it that way. Because why not? Um, so yeah, we're on to season 10, so obviously your spoiler warning is season 10 of classic Doctor Who, um, and I I like this run. I think this is the the strongest run since season 7, you know, 8 and 9, talked about the ups and downs of both of them, but I do think that we get a little bit more consistency throughout this season. Uh, so I'll kick off by asking you both what your favourite serial of this run is. So you go first, Jimmy. Well, before I rewatched everything, I was expecting to be torn between the Three Doctors and the Green Death. But on the rewatch, much as I love the Three Doctors, Green Death easily beats it. It's definitely the highlight of the season for me. It's an absolutely fantastic story, um, and it, it kind of it, it's it's almost like a last hurrah for this. This unit team, it's, you know, we've no Roger Delgado, sadly no master, but everyone else from the unit family gets to have a, a jolly good run around in this one. And uh, seeing the Brigadier sort of out of a unit setting is always quite nice. Um, Greg, what about you? Um, I agree with you that this season has more consistency to it, but I don't know if we agree on what kind of consistency that is. <laughs> but... Uh, that consistency is broken with the Green Death, which is easily the best story of the season. Like there isn't even competition for it in my mind. It's excellent. I do love the Green Death, uh, but I also love the Three Doctors, and I also love Frontier in Space. Um, and nobody else loves Frontier in Space, so I think for the sake of giving it a shout out that it won't get anywhere else, I'm going to settle on that this time um, for reasons that I shall explain when we get a little further on. Um, but we will start with the first story, which was The Three Doctors, which is, it kind of set the precedent for doing anniversary stories, multi-doctor stories. It, in hindsight, it's it's a pretty 
wild move. And I really, really like the way they do it here. This is a proper unit era John Pertwee Doctor Who story that the second and sadly to a lesser extent the first Doctor just happened to be involved with or brought into. Um, I quite like the fact that beyond the fact that these other two Doctors are there, it is actually just another early 70s Doctor Who story. And I think that works really well. It could very easily have looked backwards or brought in the Daleks or brought in the Cybermen or something like that. But actually, we've got an original villain. You could argue the stakes are perhaps up to little bit. Uh, there's quite a lot of Time Lord involvement and the Time Lords are under attack and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, this is just a story that fits very neatly in between the Time Monster and Carnival of Monsters when you're doing a marathon. It isn't particularly over the top. It isn't particularly milestone-y. It's just the Three Doctors, and I quite like that. Um, so, Jimmy, tell us about the Three Doctors. What are your thoughts on it? Well, for me, as much as I love, I really love the Pertwee era that as we're going through it at the moment, and it's been a highlight um, for me watching this era in order. I think I've seen all of it before, but not particularly in, in the right order. And so much as I love it, though, I've got to say, having Troughton and Hartnell back is obviously the highlight for me as a huge fan of the 60s Doctor Who. Troughton absolutely steals the show, and it's sad that Hartnell couldn't be in it more, but it's brilliant that we got what little we did instead of, you know, it could have easily been made a year or two later and he wouldn't have been able to be there at all. But I, I love that he gets that last line of, I started to think what you'll do without me, which seems like such a fitting end for his Doctor. It's a bit like when Chris Eccleston left and he got the, you know what, you were fantastic, but so was I. I mean, it's just nice to see these two underrated Doctors sort of get that final line acknowledging how good they were. And so that was a highlight for me as a Hartnell fan. But, yeah, I do love the story in and of itself. And I think it's not the best of the season because, obviously, the Green Death, but it's um, it's brilliant. It's got plenty of faults, but, like, the gel guard design for a start. But some of it really works well, like the, the strange-looking effects for the antimatter blob thing actually works really well like it looks weird but it's, it's sort of meant to because it's meant to be this alien other universe thing it's like it shouldn't look like anything that makes sense so I think that worked really well and once again the dynamic between Joe and the Doctor is such a highlight both in terms of the continuing arc of her sort of loyalty to the Doctor versus his constant plans like this time he wants to lure the thing away from Earth and he doesn't want to put her in danger and that becomes a real big thing through this season right through to the last story and also in terms of a dynamic with the Doctor her dynamic with the second Doctor I think even though you didn't really get much interaction between them her and Troughton really clicked well and they made such a great companion and Doctor combo together for the brief time that they were there so that was nice and yeah, other than that, you've got the whole Omega and the Time Lord history being developed, which is another thing that I really like. And Omega does get a bit hammy, and the mind monster thing that he fights Pertwee as looks a bit silly, but the concept is brilliant, and it's really well handled that they developed this character and developed this story with him. Um, and I just love the silly little things about the story as well, like the mind monster thing looks silly, the gel guys look silly. You've got the jokes about the silicon rod and the... Well, it says no admittance on the door that's just by itself, but it's a fun story, and I, I think that's what was needed for the celebration. It's, it does a good job of celebrating the history of the show, but 
it does a good job of the story in itself and it's a good bit of fun, really. I mean, the only thing I can really say is it would have been so much better if maybe Hartnell had been well enough to appear fully or apparently they wanted to get Jamie back instead of having Benton have such a big role but he couldn't come because Fraser Hines was filming something else and, you know, all these could have been that would have made it better but what we did get was well worth doing and quite enjoyable in and of itself. So, I mean, sure, you can mourn what we didn't get but I think what we did get is worth celebrating. I think you can probably mourn what we didn't get with near enough any Doctor Who story uh, at some point, but I understand how obviously with this one it kind of just it matters a bit more because it is a celebration and it is Hartnell's final ever appearance as the Doctor and so many other things. Uh, I think the one brilliant thing this story does is it kind of sends the Doctor and Joe off and lets the second Doctor be Unit's scientific advisor and it kind of we get the second Doctor treating the Brigadier as he treated the Brigadier in, in Invasion and his appearance is there. Uh, but the Brigadier has moved on. The Brigadier has worked with the third Doctor and he's used to working the third Doctor's kind of way, even if he doesn't always agree with it or whatever. Um, so I quite like the sort of... It's almost like another what could have been. What if Troughton had have done another season and what if the second Doctor had been unit scientific advisor, and we just get a little glimpse of it, and I absolutely love that. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on Three Doctors? Well, speaking of the Brigadier, was he having a really bad day, or did he like have a late night the night before this all kicked off or something? Because he seems to be about one negative event away from having a complete nervous breakdown throughout this entire story. And I'm not entirely sure why, but um, <laughs> it, it, it makes for a, an interesting dynamic. And, you know, you're absolutely right about uh, Patrick Troughton, you know, taking on that role of scientific advisor and just approaching it from a much more uh, anarchic standpoint than, you know, Pertwee's doctor ever does, which I think, you know, shakes things up a little bit. I think The Three Doctors is a great example of a Bob Baker, Dave Martin story, which we've talked about before, which to me is usually a great idea, shame about the execution. I love episode one of this. I think it really builds up the mystery and the tension. I think the antimatter monsters are legitimately threatening. I think it's genuinely a bit frightening how unstoppable they are and how they just seem to destroy everything in their path indiscriminately. Um, I think it's really interesting that they work the Time Lords into it. And then, of course, you bring the other Doctors into it. Like, the first episode really feels like this is building up to be this, this spectacular story, you know, the, the likes of which we haven't seen before. And, and then you hit the middle two parts, and it's mostly just the characters running back and forth and Omega's domain getting captured and escaping and captured and escaping and running down the hallway of the Omega's castle and then running into gel guards and running in the other direction and then trying to run another way and no, no, there's gel guards. And, oh, it just, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And I, 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 I don't know why. I mean, I've seen this story so many times, but that really jumped out at me this time. Um, but the, you know, the myth the mythology aspects of it help save it, you know, because Omega is a you know a new creation at this point, and it's really interesting to get a window into Time Lord history. 
Um, of course, the 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 vocal performance by Stephen Thorne is is absolutely phenomenal. Like the anguished scream that he yells out when he takes the mask off is 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 excellent. I mean, it, it's 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 so good in concept. I just by the time you get to episode four and you have to sit there and watch every single character slowly walk through the singularity and disappear. It's just like, what are we doing here? But yeah, I, 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 I enjoy it despite that because it is the three doctors, because we do get to see Patrick Troughton and William Hartnell return to the role. Hartnell's last ever acting performance, in fact. And, you know, even though he couldn't do more because of his health, like you can still see that old, you know, spark and, and personality in him, even, sitting down and being up on the monitor. And I just, I love the story of, you know, it's sad, but it's heartening in a way that, you know, when they, when they called to inquire about his interest, like they first talked to him and he was like, Oh, of course I'll do whatever you need. And then his wife had to talk him down and called him and be like, he's not really healthy enough to do that because he loved the character so much. And he loved the role so much that he, you know, was jumping to, appear in the show one more time. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it would be a, a much lesser production without Hartnell. And even though he does only get a scene or two per episode, it's the way he's brought into it is just absolutely fantastic. And the fact that he's there is kind of almost the boss of the other two doctors. Um, I think it's just great. It's a fantastic dynamic which unfortunately we don't get to explore more, but it's it's there. And I think not just the story, but you know, Doctor Who in general is better for it. I really do like the fact that Hartnell got to establish some kind of relationship with other Doctors in a multi-Doctor story. It, I just it find does it, work well. I find it interesting, you know, because in the classic series, and we only see him twice, you know, here and then recast in the five Doctors, but they treat the first Doctor as, you know, the the elder statesman, you know, the wise old man. And then much later in the, in the, in the new series, you know, like Stephen Moffat correctly observes that actually he's the youngest one of them and he shouldn't be the most experienced and the wisest. But at the time, like they didn't, they just, well, he's this dignified, you know, older character. So of course he's the one in charge. I just, I think it's, it's interesting to, to compare the two. Well, that's kind of because the classic series sort of had a respect for him, whereas Stephen Moffat's portrayal obviously very clearly had no respect for the character or his history. So, you know, there's that. I think they've just, it has been approached in many different ways. And I kind of, I, I get that, yes, the first Doctor is actually the youngest. He, you know, maybe he isn't the oldest one. But I also like the fact that in terms of, well, in terms of actor and how long the character's been around and where the character stands, he is kind of the the grandfather of all the other Doctors. It is it is a nice dynamic. It perhaps doesn't make sense. I think you were right there, Greg. But yeah, I, I, I really do enjoy the way he's portrayed in this and in the five Doctors. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I think Three Doctors was one of the very, very first stories, I, stories that I saw. So... I really, really enjoy it. I've got an awful lot of time for it, but I think a lot of that is very genuine nostalgia. Um, I'd just sort of discovered Doctor Who and all of a sudden there was this story that had the first three Doctors in it all at the same time. Um, and I think that's probably why I picked it. I think the five Doctors came immediately afterwards. Um, and it's 
it, it is a it's a truly great story. It's it's a lot of fun, and it is as I said before, very of the era it was made in. So you you get a lot of that Pertwee charm um, in it as well, and it's nice to see other doctors brought into that era. And I think perhaps that's something we don't get with five doctors. It's not so much a fifth doctor story where the other doctors turn up. It's everyone gets a bit more of an equal slice of the pie. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's a great story. It's really enjoyable. Um, so we'll move on. And next up is one that I have to admit I wish I liked more than I did. I appreciate that it has some absolutely brilliant moments and it's a great concept, but it's just never quite clicked with me. It's Carnival of Monsters, um, and it's everything about it tells me I should like it. You know, there's there's some absolutely brilliant dialogue. It's a Robert Holmes story, therefore by default there's a level of brilliance there before we've even started. But it just it seems to go on a bit. I find the stuff inside the miniscope to be a little boring, maybe, but I really enjoy the stuff going on outside the miniscope. That seems to be where the really interesting stuff's happening. Um, so I won't rattle on about it uh, anymore. I will pass over to Jimmy. What are your thoughts on this one? For me, this story, I seem to, it seems to change every time I watch it. Sometimes I love it and sometimes I don't. And this time it was sort of fell in the middle. Like I really enjoyed it, but I could see a lot of areas that it should have and could have been better. Like I think the alien masks for the functionaries, not just the main um, aliens, but the sort of those specifically drone sort of ones looked really bad. Like they should have been able to do something better. I mean, even in the seventies, even on a low budget, that just was not good enough. And the entertainer costumes, like, I mean, obviously they're meant to be flashy and ridiculous, but I think they went a bit too far in that direction. Like it looked completely bonkers. Like if they had a normal sort of realistic looking setting to appear in, it might work well as a contrast, but they purposely made the planet so dull that it just does too much seeing them like that. Uh, the other thing is, of course, the Drashigs. It's a cool idea, but they don't really execute it very well. I mean, the thing I always can't help but think when I see this story, and you see that tiny two seconds of there's a Cybermen in this thing, is they should have had the Cybermen get out instead of the Drashigs, turn it into a Cybermen story. Like, have you worried that those people on that ship are going to get converted or something and have a bit of a race against time to stop that from happening? It's it's just a bit of a shame that the Drashigs, who are the centrepiece of the the centrepiece monster of the carnival, as it were, they're a bit rubbish, which is a bit of a shame. But um, for me, the story's still good. The best part for me is once the Doctor gets out of the machine and he starts to be involved in that story in the outside. That's when the thing comes together. I think they sort of dragged it out a bit too long, and they should have had the Doctor or Joe or both get out sooner and figure out what's going on. And leaving it to the last minute made it a bit. I don't know, it made the two separate s sections of the story not seem to fit well together. And the other thing I can't help but notice is the um, continuity-wise, you've got that thing about the ship, it's 1926, and Joe's like, oh, that's 40 years ago, which is like unit. usually the unit dating gets stuffed because things are supposed to be later than it actually was, but this time it's sounding like Joe's from the 60s instead of the 70s, which is a really weird decision. And... The other thing is the Doctor's mention of the ship being, oh, it's it was as famous as, what was it, the Mary Celeste or the Titanic or whatever. It was as famous as that in its time. This ship went missing and it never came back. And then at the end of the stories, they're like, 
oh, yeah, and everything that was in the um, mini scope got sent back to its right place and time. So how was the ship ever famous as missing then? It never went missing. It got sent back right, right as it left. So just a weird thing that they didn't bother or didn't notice to deal with that continuity. But I think these lots of little faults just sort of dig at the story and sometimes I can look past them and enjoy it. But this time they really got to me. It's, yeah, it's good, but it should have been so much better. I think on that last point, I'm going to use the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey get-out clause. But uh, yes, I do know what you mean. Um, I do think that the Doctor spends too much time in the miniscope and then he eventually gets out and you think, oh, great, he's out of the miniscope. Something's going to happen. There's going to be movement on the outside story. Uh, he near enough immediately goes back in. Um, and it, it's just, I, I really wish it had focused on the outside world a little bit more, but I fear for that to happen, this would have to turn into a six-parter and no four parts of Carnival of Monsters is absolutely definitely long enough thank you very much <laughs> yep um greg what are your thoughts on it i'm in the same boat as both of you um i don't think it's a, a bad story i mean as you were saying you know it's robert holmes so there's always a, a baseline level of quality there you know there's some interesting things i mean like vorg and sherna are fun characters and it, you know the the stuff on the ship, at least at the start, is is interesting, but I think the problem is is that first of all, you know, the the world outside is defined as being dull and gray and boring. And I mean, while I see, you know, the what he's going for metaphorically there with the audience and with television and so on, it has the effect of making the story boring. It's I, I don't, it's very hard to pull off any kind of idea in which like something is defined as being bad or difficult to watch or boring or whatever, because even though that's sometimes the point, it's still bad or difficult to watch or boring. And this is, the scenes outside of the miniscope are just absolutely dull. And then the ones inside the miniscope just go on for far too long. Like, it, you know, it's a nice little mystery right at the start, like what's going on, what's, why are the Doctor and Joe on this ship, like how's that related to the outside world, but then they, ex you know, to this other planet rather, but then they explain it, you know, they're in this thing and they're being watched and it still goes on and on and on and on and then they finally escape the ship and it's like, all right, now something's going to happen and then they climb around inside the miniscope for a while and it's like, okay, and then they go to the world of the Drashigs, which is a really cool, you know, they're one of the best looking alien monsters the show ever did. Like it's, they, they were really scary to me when I was a little kid, but again, like that whole sequence is just, it doesn't add anything to the story. It's just like, well, here's a monster because we need something to be happening. And it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't have any like particular effect or meaning or anything. It just gives, you know, some sort of motivation for them to run faster when they're going through the innards of the miniscope. And yeah, it, you know, it, it's an ongoing theme in this season that the stories are just padded out to a, a ridiculous extent. 
and that's true of the two four-parters. So we're about to get into the six-parters, and it and it and it doesn't uh, doesn't improve until the end, unfortunately. But you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm slamming this story because, again, like there are a lot of good lines. Like there are some really interesting concepts. Like the themes of it are 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 pointed and interesting. Like it it's clearly you know written by by an intelligent you know talented scriptwriter, but. Ah, the execution. I quite like the uh, sort of world building that goes on in this one. It's, you know, it it does, it's the planet called Interminer. I can never remember, but it it feels like a genuine functioning society. And I like the sort of comedy bureaucrat characters that it produces. And it, it really does feel like this is taking place in a galaxy, it's not just some little settlement or some little society. This is this is an entire alien world, and it does feel like an entire alien world, even though it's only a couple of dodgy, even by the standards of the time, looking sets. Um, yeah, there's. It feels like there's an awful lot more that this story could pick apart and focus on, and maybe its focus is actually in the wrong area um i'm less interested in the miniscope than i am the sort of world that's going on around it and because it was done on one or two sets it does come across as a bit boring it's not amazing and action-packed as you'd want something like that to be but i definitely think there was actually more than tap potential there than there is um through the miniscope part of the story um, the Drashigs were great, though. Yeah, they were excellent monsters. I kind of like, latched onto what Jimmy was saying. It would have been great if it was a Cyberman story or an Ogron story or just, just something uh, like that. But I do like the fact that this story, one thing it does do is successfully realise another alien monster. Um, that's that's sort of quite a, quite an achievement, really. Uh, and I think the Hooniverse is better because of Drashigs than than it would be without them. Um, And they've popped up in Big Finish a couple of times and they've been used fairly effectively there. So, yeah, I'm glad we have Drashigs. And as Greg said, they do look fantastic. They are very well realised in a story where it's fair to say not much else is, really. Um, We'll head on to the next story. So Frontier in Space. Um, I feel as though I might have to do a bit of defending here. It is slow. It goes on. It's capture, escape, capture, escape, capture, escape. But similar to Carnival of Monsters, actually, there is a lot of world building. There is quite a bit of tension between the... Well, tension to be found in the story uh, of the building tension between the humans and the Draconians. And I quite like that Draconians, they feel like a properly realised society there. They're not villains, they're just aliens that inhabit the same universe and are sort of on speaking terms with humans in the future. I like the fact that Earth is sort of portrayed in a certain way and that, you know, there's a president and that it is sort of the seat of what feels like this big galactic empire. Um, It just, it feels like a really immersive setting um, and it's because it's a good old-fashioned space opera and there is a lot of travelling, there is a lot of travelling <laughs> about by spaceship. Um, 
I feel as though we do get to see quite a bit of this universe. It feels big. It feels epic. It also feels quite slow. Um, but that slowness is kind of eased up a bit by the appearance of the master halfway through the story. Suddenly the dynamic changes and it's going somewhere else. And the same happens in the final episodes when the Daleks make their appearance. Um, it's only a bit of a cameo. It's only really setting up Planet of the Daleks. And you could actually argue that this is part one to six of a 12-part story. Um, so, yeah, it's flawed. But I do find an awful lot in Frontier in Space to enjoy. Um, but I am now looking forward to hearing you two rip the living daylights out of it. Uh, Jimmy, you go first. I actually, I, I obviously don't like it as much as you do, but I don't think it's as bad as a lot of fandom do say it is. I think the hardest part of it is that it does feel a bit dragging and boring early on before the master comes in. But I think Delgado does such an amazing job for his final story that he just brings it to life and makes it so much better. I just, it is too long in a way that like if they cut it down to cut down the first part to just one episode before Delgado arrives and give him a bit longer on the scene, I think it wouldn't feel as slow. Like he does such a brilliant job with the master always. And it's so sad that his final story wasn't like a planned actual you know intentional exit for him or something and that we never got that but he absolutely shines even what it and what would if he had got that later would have been you know an average story he he just really makes it work and I mean I love the way that he talks about the doctor and Joe and he's like my two dear what was it two dear such dear friends and it's like you believe it like he he yeah he wants to conquer the earth or the galaxy or whatever but he does care about the Doctor and he's even come to care about Joe to an extent, which is sort of a surprise because all the later Masters with later companions, you never it never feels like they care about the Doctor's companion as anything other than a tool to hurt the Doctor or get in the Doctor's way. But with Joe and Delgado's Master, it really seems like there's an actual chemistry and a dynamic there and that's something I love about the two of them together. And, yeah, he absolutely lights up the story and especially that scene where he's telling one of the Ogrons something about, well, no ship would ever go this way. And the Ogron's like, uh, we're going this way. And he just flies into a rage. I know that you, it's, it's brilliant to see him sort of unravel a bit because usually he's so calm and collected when he's playing the role. It, it just brings the story uh, such a good highlight when he's just, what are you talking about to the Ogron? Just, it's so good. And I think the best thing for me about the story, well, no, sorry, two things to go. Um, I think one of the best things is at the end when the master tries to hypnotise Joe and she resists and then he tries to use the sound thing that makes you see whatever you're scared of and she sort of resists again and it's just such a good thing for Joe's arc that, you know, in her final, compared to her first story where the master has her only blow up unit HQ, by the last time she meets the master, she's resisting his hypnosis easily and she's quite competent and capable against him. And I think it's brilliant that we got that in the classic series. Like often the companions did get, you know, shafted by the storyline as it were. But um, Joe here just, yeah, she absolutely, she's capable and confident in and of herself and she can resist the master and it's such a good thing to see. And like you were saying about the character development and the story, the world development, I loved the way you had Draconia and Earth against each other and you actually got that confrontation between the Draconian prince and the general and 
it's like, well, you blew up my spaceship. Well, here's, I couldn't communicate with you, but what about this? What about that? And they sort of actually hash things out. And by the end, they seem to be, you know, not friends as such, but they seem to be accepting of each other and to be happy to work together and form that joint mission to get to the Ogron planet. And I think it's good to see something like that because usually when you've got the, you know, war mongering hotheads in classic who it's like it's always just shown oh they're bad they're stupid but this one it's like no you've both made mistakes but you can overcome them you can work together and you can you know do the right thing again and i think it's a good thing that we actually get a storyline like that so yeah i mean sure this story is a bit overlong and a bit dragging in places but i think it's brilliant despite that the um the war storyline in this and kind of how it is resolved by the prince and the general sort of talking and realizing they've made a bit of a mistake it's kind of echoed in sort of a war that's part of the backstory to babylon 5 as well and i kind of like to think that somewhere in big finish land someone's thinking hmm we could do babylon 5 but it's draconians um and that that could be interesting. That could be something worth exploring. I genuinely feel that this is a setting that doesn't get fairly explored. It's it, it's sort of quite big in terms of where it places the Earth and the Draconian empires and that kind of thing. I feel as though there could be quite a bit worth mining there, um, and it's just it's not quite been investigated in expanded media as much as it could be. Um, Delgado is great. As you said, anything Delgado is in just kind of automatically gets raised quality-wise. Um, this is no exception whatsoever. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts? I mean, there is a lot to like here. I I like, as you were just saying, the um, the world building of it. I mean, it, it, it fleshes out like what the landscape of the galaxy looks like in the future in a way that very little Doctor Who does. You know, Doctor Who historically has not really been at all concerned with any kind of consistency of its presentation of the future. I mean, we've got, you know, thousand page Bible sized volumes of, of trying to reconcile all of the different historical information that we've seen over the years in Doctor Who. But I agree. I wish they'd gone back to this one more because it's really interesting and it's really fleshed out. And it seems like there's opportunity here for other stories to be told. I mean, I, I think if we could do, you know, Big Finish, if we could do a whole box set of stories set on Peladon and some of those were very good, you know, you, you could do the same thing with this setting as well. Um, I think... Like Jimmy was saying, Roger Delgado in this is fantastic. I mean, he's always fantastic, but he really, you know, brings an energy to it. And at least when he's on screen, there's always like something like, okay, well, I can't take my eyes away from this for, for a second because I want to see what, you know, what he's going to do next. My issue with the story is that if it was a four-parter, it might be one of my favorites of the era, but the first four episodes of this story the entirety of the first four episodes of the story are the doctor and Joe being shuttled from prison cell to prison cell. Sometimes they're together. Sometimes they're apart. Sometimes they're on the moon or the doctor's on the moon. Sometimes the master is there. Sometimes they get taken out of the prison briefly to go meet with, you know, the leader of whoever has imprisoned them at that time, but it's just prison to prison to prison to prison. And, you know, as much as I, 
agree that like they really flushed this world out a bit. What we see the most of in this world is its prison cells. And that's just not very interesting. And like episode five, once they're finally out of this, it's not even capture escape. They're just captured if they're, after they're out of this sequence of, you know, being shuttled from prison to prison and they're actually out and free and able to act. Then the story opens up and then it gets really interesting. But those, that four episode prologue is just like, oh man, like again, like so much of this season is just padded out and, and, and this story is no exception. Um, and it's a shame because like by the time you get to the end and all of a sudden the Daleks are in it and like that's easily the most surprising Dalek reveal we've ever had, I think. I mean, it, it's fan that that's fantastic. I love Delgado like just having no respect for the Daleks at all, like doing a mocking Dalek voice, calling them stupid tin boxes. Like I, I, I love that. I, I think it works really well. I, I wish that the following story had actually like been in the same setting as this one instead of being its own weird, almost unrelated thing. But you know, we'll get to that. Um, yeah, Frontier in Space. It's again, if you if you could just lop off two of the episodes from the beginning, I think you could have a close to a, a classic. But but man, it's tough to get through that first hour and a half. I mean, we've talked about six parters before, and. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a single one in the Pertwee era that doesn't feel padded in some way. Um, which, when you think about season seven and its seven parters, a lot of them are actually quite fast moving, and they do they go from place to place. You know, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes literally. But yeah, it, it all Pertwee six parters seem to feel an awful lot longer than the seven parters at the start of the era. And it's just, it's so strange. It's almost like they've forgotten how to kind of uh, structure something that's a bit longer because a lot of 60s six parters and even the 60s 12 parter doesn't feel over long. It doesn't feel like it doesn't deserve that runtime. And, you know, the war games we talked about, it's 10 parts that just absolutely fly by. Um, it's no matter how much I will defend Frontier in Space, I I can't overlook the fact that it is horrendously slow. It does not move an inch for you're quite right. It doesn't move an inch for four episodes. Um, but yeah, it, it's story lengths are really a problem at this point. I have to admit, I do think it's a problem that gets somewhat slightly improved on during season 11, which is obviously the next one we're going to talk about. I think season 11, six parters perhaps have something a little more to offer than eight, nine and tens. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's fair to say now that there's no denying it as we're going through all of this chronologically, Pertwee six parters are a problem. Um, so let's talk about another one, Planet of the Daleks. Um, this to me just feels like the default Terry Nation blueprint for a story. Like if somebody fed everything Terry Nation ever wrote into some kind of AI and asked it to write a Terry Nation Dalek story, Planet of the Daleks is what it would kick out. Um, so Jimmy, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's definitely the uh, low light of the season. It's um, 
as you say, very generic and churned out. And um, I'd, I'd have to agree with all that. It's um, I've made a lot less dot points to talk about with it than any other story in the season. Over half of them are quibbles with weird mistakes and stuff with the plot. Um, I will say first, I don't think it's got as much connection as it should have perhaps to the previous story. Like you were saying, they could almost be a sort of single 12 part like the Daleks master plan, but it's just like the Daleks are in both. But other than that, the connection is quite slim. I mean, it's a bit like saying an unearthly child and the Daleks are the same story because you've got the cliffhanger at the end of the radiation meter and no, nah, they're, they're separate. Like, I mean, you can I, you could argue they're together, but it doesn't make sense to me. But, um, yeah, I'll start with a couple of the things I did like about the story. First of all, obviously, as the huge Hartnell fan, hearing the third Doctor and the files talking about Susan, Barbara and Ian is just such a nice little bit of nostalgia and really heartwarming, so that was nice. And I love at the end the conversation the Doctor has with Codal about um, – oh, sorry, not at the end – the conversation where he has about bravery and, you know, bravery not being you know not being scared it's being scared and doing what you have to and then the conversation at the end i forget whether it was with codal again or with one of the other files but the conversation about not glamorizing war when you go home and talk about it and yeah that's that sort of stuff's good very pertwee era but in a good way but then you've got the rest of the story and it's pretty rubbish and lots of weird quibbles and plot holes here like first of all the molten ice so water like, they do try to talk their way around it and, oh, it's got some special magical property that makes it not actually freeze, but it's still frozen cold. And it's like, yeah, but come on, molten ice. It sounds like you're talking about water. It's a bit stupid, isn't it? <laughs> I Yeah, I can't get past that. And then you've got all these other little plot holes, like the part when they're in the lift going through the Dalek base and the doctor goes in and he wants to go up and it's like, oh, no, the Daleks have control of the lift. I can't go up, but I can go down. It's like, hang on, if the Daleks have control, why are they letting you go anywhere? It should be stopped and you should be able to get out. It just It's like, where's the logic in, oh, the Daleks have control. We can't go up, but we can go down. And then the bit where they're flying up in the hot air balloon sort of thing through the thermal vents or whatever, it, it's just weird that the Daleks don't think, oh, yeah, turn off the air and let the Dalek, the Doctor and the Files fall back down and splatter. I mean, it's just weird that no one thinks of this. And then you've got the bacteria. The Daleks have this huge plot point of, oh, we're immunising every single Dalek and every single slave worker against the bacteria. And then one of the spirons goes in and releases the bacteria in the room and it's like, no, we can't let it out. You... You've already vaccinated your entire staff. Why can't you let it out? Like, wasn't that the whole point of it, to let it out? It's just, yeah, really terribly written, full of plot holes. It's, I mean, it, it's weird that no one picked it up or no one did anything about it. It's just, yeah, so much stupid mistakes and stupid logic. It's just a shame. It's Otherwise, this season is really brilliant throughout, but this story is the one that really lets everything down, I think. You do wonder if they perhaps under-edited Terry Nation because at that point he should have been considered the safest pair of hands there is. Um, you know, he he was by far the most successful writer working on Doctor Who at this point. 
um like you you imagine they just thought oh well you know it's it, it terry's doing a dalek story he knows them better than anybody let's just let him get on with it maybe that's where all of this comes from but i agree it's it's an incredibly clunkily written story and it is a real throwback to earlier 60s doctor who because terry nation is still writing for the same show he wrote for when he wrote the original dalek story whereas everybody else has moved on for 10 years um yeah greg your go that is exactly how i would describe it it's terry nation like not realizing that the show has moved on from where it was when he first wrote for it back in the early 60s it's written in that old very serialized kind of flash gordon style that terry nation was fond of the the characters are all the the finest cliches um there's it's it's six parts but there's really not much particularly interesting that happens like i kind i mean i kind of like the idea of the doctor getting trapped in the tardis and you know having his own machine like potentially become his tomb like that's kind of interesting but then it kind of just begs the question of like if the tardis is so big inside why did he run out of air after like five minutes and how is that little thing of like two oxygen tanks or three oxygen tanks going to supply even if it was working how is that going to keep him alive for more than like 10 minutes i you know i i think the I think the best way to express how I feel about this story is to explain how I first saw it as a kid. Uh, growing up in the U.S. in the 80s, um, Doctor Who in Chicago was shown in the omnibus format on our public television station, so we didn't get the individual 25-minute parts. We got just the whole thing presented as in one chunk with all the Uh, credits and all the cliffhanger reprises edited out. So a four-part story would be about 90 minutes long. A six-part story would usually be divided into two parts for airing. They'd show the first three and then the last three. Um, But the one thing my local station did not do is they did not show black and white Doctor Who episodes. They only showed the color episodes. So I didn't see any of the Hartnell or Troughton eras for a long time, which, by the way, was why I liked Three Doctors so much, because I actually got to see William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton, which I hadn't you know, been able to do outside of that and the Five Doctors. Um, and they just wouldn't show any black and white. And of course, back in the time, a lot of the Pertwee era only existed in black and white. So, you know, I didn't see a lot of season seven and season eight. And then for a long time, episode three of Planet of the Daleks was only in black and white. One, two, four, five, six were in color, but episode three, black and white. And so sticking with their policy, my local station uh, showed Planet of the Daleks with episode three just edited out. It just wasn't there. It went from the end of episode two just straight into the start of episode four and didn't make any mention of it whatsoever. And I think it is a testimony to the quality of Planet of the Daleks and Terry Nation scripting that for a very long time, I didn't even know anything was missing. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Um, It's... Yeah, it's an interesting one. Very little happens during those middle episodes and like there's some point in the story where more thals turn up and i couldn't even pinpoint when that is because 
all of the Thals are just so similar. Like there's the occasional sort of, each one gets a label, I guess, you know, the stubborn one, the brave one, the pretty one. But honestly, like what's, there's no kind of anything going on there. Um, I suppose the one thing that this story is notable for character wise is it gives Joe another sort of hinted at fleeting romance in the same way that uh, Curse of Peladon did. And I guess that we are now quite heavily signposting that this is how Joe is going to leave. Joe's exit is going to be sort of romance based, um, which of course it is in the very next story, The Green Death. Um, so after largely ignoring unit for the season, we go back and we have a unit story. Um, I really like it. Green death. It's a very good story. It's a solid story. It's perhaps the best six part of there's been so far. I know I've just bemoaned them, but actually green Death's quite good. And it, it does move at a, a fair old pace. It develops stuff happens to sort of change the landscape. It isn't just a capture and escape, run around. Uh, there's maybe a little bit too much of men arguing in an office, but otherwise it's it's a really great story with some really great characters and it gives us a it gives us a decent companion exit, which is still something we don't get to see an awful lot of around this time. We haven't seen a good companion exit done really since Fury from the Deep. Uh, you could argue the War Games is quite good, but it is more focused on getting rid of the Doctor as opposed to Jamie and Zoe, who kind of just get bundled in a TARDIS and a scene back where they came from. Uh, Liz never got one at all. Um, so it's nice to see that Joe does get a decent exit, and it's you actually feel as though a companion's exit has some emotional ramifications for the Doctor, which you haven't had for quite some time. Um, so, The Green Death, you both said it was your favourite story of the season. Tell me why. Jimmy, you go first. Well, to start with, it's just so brilliant overall. Like, I mean, I've got a whole bunch of dot points, as I always do, to talk about, and there's only one thing in the entire story that doesn't work, and that, for me, is at the end when the one of the giant maggots turns into a giant fly, and... The giant fly looks terrible. They realise the maggots amazingly and the giant fly looks more like a dragonfly than an actual fly and it just looks so ridiculous and silly. It's the one fault in an otherwise pretty much perfect story. I mean, the whole thing centres on Jo so well in the dynamic with her and with Cliff and it. she's sort of seeing him as a younger doctor and the doctor being sad to lose her and he even gives her that line about, I'm offering you all of time and space and... It's just, it's so sad to see. Like, I mean, it's it's brilliant that Joe gets a happy ending and it's so tragic for the Doctor because, like, he's gone from, in her first story, oh, I don't even want her and only keeps her because the Brigadier's like, well, you've got to fire her yourself and he can't bring himself to do it. And yet by now she's, like, clearly one of his absolute favourite people and he wants to travel with her forever and she doesn't want to anymore and it's just heartbreaking for her, for him. Um yeah, it's such a brilliant story as well, but I think the dynamic between the Doctor and Joe and Joe and Cliff and the Doctor and Cliff is just what really makes it great. But, yeah, you've got the rest of the story. You've got the brilliant environmental message, which could still be done today and be relevant, and then you've got the whole 
yeah, everything with Joe and the whole the fledgling flies the coop and the doctor sees her as a sort of assistant that she almost maybe is implied to want the romance thing because of the cliff dynamic. And then you've got the doctor finally getting to Metabelius and you get that a bit of a silly runaround of, you know, just no dialogue, just him running back and forth and being attacked by the monsters. But it's nice to see him finally get there and it's nice that the plot points gets revisited in the next season and yeah, just the dynamic again with the Doctor and Professor Jones and he's even though he's obviously never met him before, he's also very highly thinking of him. Like when he gets that line about, Oh, you were brilliant for your age, oh I'm then correcting himself to explain the age you live in and it's yeah, it's just so good and the doctor being even jealous at points, like the that bit where Joe's sitting up waiting for Cliff and the doctor just immediately is like ah, Cliff, and just starts distracting him with all sorts of nonsense to get him away from Joe and really comes across as jealous. And, again, the Doctor's disguise is hilarious. Well, maybe hilarious is going a bit far, but it's very funny, especially Yates' reaction to the washerwoman disguise and them sort of taking out of each other a bit. And, yeah, Stevens, boss is such a great villain and such an interesting idea and the way he sort of goes a bit nuts after he tries to control the doctor and he couldn't do it and you get that whole dialogue about freedom from freedom and it's I just think it's such a well handled story and yeah you get to the end and then you get that really everyone's happy cheery party ending the Joe's getting married and doctor just you know skulls his wine in one sip and turns and buggers off while everyone else is still enjoying themselves it's it's just sad to see him just wander off and all depressed and at the end of such a such an optimistic ending and you see him just heartbroken and it's really a tragic ending for him and for this whole three-season-long era that they've had together. It's just, yeah, I think they handled everything apart from that fly really well in this story. It's brilliant. I think that the Green Death kind of lives and dies on the fact that uh Professor Jones Cliff is such a great character, instantly likable, and a lot of the tension in the final few episodes is brought about by the fact that he's been bitten by a maggot, he's suffering from this condition that's already killed a fair few characters in the serial, and you really care about him. Like he, He's a character that popped up at the start of the story. You really want him to live, it really matters, and it's because you've kind of followed Joe through that process of coming to like him uh, in quite a short space of time uh, I think it works really well I think it's excellently done personally I'd have quite liked him to have been introduced earlier in the season maybe doing some work for unit or whatever and we could actually have seen his and relation his and Joe's relationship blossom a little bit on the earth-based stories but that's not how telly was made back then it's never going to happen um, Greg, what are your thoughts on it? I agree with Jimmy. I mean, I think the story is pretty much brilliant. It's, and like you were saying too, it's maybe the best Pertwee six-parter. I mean, it would be this or Mind of Evil for me. Um, but, you know, I as I've been watching, you know, these these four seasons of, of John Pertwee, it, it, and, you know, after having three consecutive stories set away from Earth, and away from unit like to come back to unit in this story just feels right it feels like natural it feels like returning home like when the story opens like 
the doctor's just there, like still working for unit. Like there's no explanation that like, Oh, you know, I've just decided to stop by for a while before going back to explore the universe. Like he's just, it's just like, this is where he's supposed to be. And I think Pertwee stories in space just don't really work very well. And I don't know if that's a consequence of, you know, the start of the era being exclusively on earth or if it's, the writers never really getting their heads around how to do like more pure outer space sci-fi stories or what, but Pertwee on earth just works so much better. And you can really see it in this story because for one thing, you've got, you know, the more expansive cast. And while unfortunately you don't have Roger Delgado, like this story recognizes that, you know, not only are the doctor and Joe, like, you know, principal characters, like so's the brigadier, So's Benton and so's Yates. And they all have significant parts to play in this story. And that's, you know, when you've got five characters who you can move around and do things with, it can make a six-parter be a lot more impactful and a lot more eventful because you can spread them out over the over the setting and have, you know, everyone getting into different types of trouble. Like bringing Yates in as, you know, the man from the ministry is a great idea because he hasn't been in the story up until that point. And, you know, after he Richard Franklin wasn't in the three doctors either. You think, Oh, is he, were he just done with Yates? And then, Oh no, there he is. And now he's got a whole subplot to deal with. Um, yeah. The, the maggots look fantastic. The, uh, the, the plot, you know, the plot is so like environmentally conscious boss is such a cool villain. And like, I, I love that the story never loses sight of the fact that boss is a computer program. Like even, as it has the suave megalomaniacal voice, like, no, it's still a computer and the doctor can still trick it like he could any other machine. And yeah, I mean, as a final episode for Joe, I mean, it's, I mean, for me, in, in terms of up until this point, in terms of a companion departure story, it's this or Dalek Invasion of Earth for me as the best ones. Like, I mean, I love the way the chase ends. You know, we talked about it quite a bit, but I think the difference between this and the chase is that, you know, the chase, like when Barbara and Ian decide to leave, we kind of understand that they've been wanting to get home, you know, throughout their entire tenure on the TARDIS. Like most of the chase is not like, thematically setting up that they're about to leave. It's just at the end, they finally have their opportunity to get home and they take it. Dalek Invasion of Earth, on the other hand, like actually goes out of its way to set up a little bit of the relationship between Susan and David. But I think the evolution of you know TV storytelling between Dalek Invasion of Earth and Green Death means that we get a lot more depth to uh, Joe and the professor's uh, relationship. And you really believe by the end of the story that the two of them are in love. I mean, now, granted, is it, oh, they're going to get married right now? Like after being together for like two days? Yeah, I mean, if you step back, that does feel a little hurried. But you really buy into that relationship. And, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about, about Joe here in a bit. But like, this is her best story. Like she's not only, you know, is she you know, given a happy ending and given, you know, given someone new to, you know, go off and save the world with. Um, and not only, you know, does it like describe, you know, it, does it parallel like her relationship with, 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 with Cliff to the, her relationship with the doctor. It 
it also like shows her like evolving as a character, like right at the beginning when, you know, and she defies the brigadier and says, no, like protecting the earth, protecting the environment is more important than, you know, whatever ridiculous thing you're going to have me go investigate. Like I have to do this. And of course it turns out that that's where she was going to go anyway, but like she's, she's becoming a more independently minded person. Like she's, she's actually learned from the doctor and she's branching out and, and it's, and it's such a wonderful contrast between this story and how she was introduced. Like, I, I love this story to pieces. It's one of my favorite Pertwee stories. It's been mentioned that, uh, obviously, the whole like environmental theme and story going on there is very relevant to now. But actually, when you think about it, arguably, Boss has become more relevant in the last year or so than it ever has been in the past. The whole idea of sort of you know, being led by AI and that kind of thing. And, you know, we're in an age now where there's a, a huge debate over AI and whether it's a good thing and what should its limitations be in terms of art and music and all that kind of thing. You know, it, it's are we really that far off a company sort of letting a computer make every single business-related decision um, and, you know, is it possible that the ethics of that could get shaky? I think the idea of boss is very, very, very 2023. Um, and I think that it's, it's, it's a rare example of Doctor Who really getting the future right, you know. Um, it, it's, it's just quite an interesting thought. Um, yeah, it, it's an excellent story, and it really does set up Joe's exit very, very well. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of glad that we sort of we do get a good Pertwee companion exit. It's a shame that we never really got a goodbye between the Doctor and Liz, um, and obviously uh, Sarah Jane outlasts the Third Doctor, and you could argue she's better known as a Fourth Doctor companion. Um, so yeah, it, it's good to get that proper sort of Doctor Companion parting during the Pertwee era. Um, so we'll just before we disappear, we'll just sort of very quickly talk about Joe. You know, I think she's gone through a huge development over the course of the three series that we've we've spent with her. I think that her relationship with the Doctor has always been a delight to watch although he was absolutely rotten to her in season eight we've talked about this before um and i suppose watching through it it does feel like that kind of settles and their relationship does develop and it's there's no big specific storyline about it it's never really building up to anything it's just they get to know each other better and they become better friends and i really really like that uh, so just quickly before we disappear, talk to us about Joe Grant. Now she's leaving us, Jimmy. I think it's brilliant how much character development she got, as you say, through her time, like going from her first story and being, you know, easily hypnotised, nearly blowing up unit. The doctor doesn't even want her there. And then three years later, you've got, you know, this highly competent and capable woman who does her own thing and is willing to strike out on her own and say no to the brigadier and the doctor at the start of the story that she wants to do her own thing and everyone cares about her and she's so, you know, such an intrinsic part of the era that it feels like how are they going to go on without her. 
I think watching the stories all in order has really helped me with her. I, I always used to think I love Joe, but I think, you know, I, I thought that she was a bit overrated. Like I, I did love her, but I thought, you know, both Liz and Sarah Jane work better with the doctor, the third doctor. And while I still do think Liz was underrated and should have got a better exit and was pretty great. And I do think I'm one of the rare people who thinks Sarah Jane worked better with Pertwee's doctor than with Tom's as a character, obviously better chemistry with Tom, but as a character, I thought she worked better with the third doctor, but seeing all Joe's stories in order, it's like, she's the third doctor companion. She really makes his era what it is. It's between her and as Joe and, Delgado is the master and all the unit crew it's it's just such a yeah they say the unit family and it really is and it's sad to see a part of that family go Joe is absolutely one of the best companions there is and it's yeah brilliant to watch her develop and change over her time in the show and come to such a brilliant conclusion in the end yeah absolutely it's it's arguably one of the most developed doctor companion relationships at all and it's it's great how it's kind of it, it there's no plan there i don't get the impression that there was ever this oh well the doctor's going to be a bit sort of hostile to her during her first series but then after that that relationship will develop and they'll become best friends none of that was there it just happened very organically and i think that's why it works so well uh greg what about you yeah i mean you know jimmy has it right there like it it's 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 very interesting to watch her develop over the three seasons you know i i mean i'll be honest like you know watching through the show again like obviously i've seen katie manning's era you know god knows how many times in my life but like i i didn't like joe when they introduced her and not because of anything katie manning was doing in her performance or anything like that just the the idea behind the character like the cynical like Liz was too smart. Like we need to bring in someone who's not as smart. So the doctor can be, you know, look smarter. And it's like, really? Like that's, that's what you're doing. And, and they really play that up. Like in Joe's first season is that she's, you know, you know, she's kind of dopey sometimes. Like she doesn't know what she's doing and she makes stupid mistakes. And it's like, and she, you know, gets into trouble really easily and she needs the doctor. It's just like, like I, I don't, why are we going back to this? Like, damsel in distress sort of you know characterization when we just had like this brilliant scientist but thankfully they figured out that that was not good and they developed joe over the subsequent couple of seasons and by the end i mean she's a she's a great character like she she has a wonderful relationship with the doctor both on screen and you know i know john pertwee and katie manning were very close and you can see it on screen like they have just this wonderful like you know this wonderful on-screen chemistry together, and 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 you can you can see that this these these two people just really like each other and really like being in each other's presence and like and it comes through in the writing and in the performances. Like it, she she really turns into a definitive companion by the end. And like I was saying, you know, by by Green Death, she gets again maybe the best departure episode of the entire classic series. Like really, like she she is is she's treated so well by the story and it's just like man like if we had done this from the beginning like you know i i I would put her up in the you know maybe she she maybe she could be in the in the conversation for me for the the best companion of all time but because of that 
first season and the way that they treated the character, like I, I, I have a hard time making that argument, but man, like by the end, like, yeah, I mean, I agree. She's the definitive companion of this era. Like it, it, it's a really, it's really a shame to see her go. Like it's genuinely emotional seeing her leave. And I do particularly like that now uh, Big Finish are obviously doing this sort of run of adventures with an older Joe. You know, she meets the Doctor not that far after this for him, but for her it is 50 years later. It is Joe Grant of the present day. And I, well, Joe Jones, I should say. Uh, And I, I quite like that that's being explored. And I quite like that, you know, he... He does get more time with Joe. She just kind of experiences it the long way round. It's it's a run I'm looking forward to kind of there being more of. We have the first three stories so far and it's sort of beautifully handled the um the death of uh, Cliff and obviously sadly the death of Stuart Bevan. And I, I yeah, it it really feels like it could go on to be something quite special. Um, and I've heard people say that maybe it cheapens this ending, maybe it cheapens that. I don't think it does at all. I think it works sort of quite nicely that actually Joe does get to meet her doctor again and her doctor gets to meet her again. Um, but we'll leave it on that note. Uh, we'll be back in the not-too-distant future for uh, Season 11, where things change quite a lot. Um, Sarah Jane's introduced, obviously. Uh, the Sontarans are introduced. Uh, and the third Doctor goes on to regenerate. I'm hoping that's not a spoiler. The third Doctor regenerates at the end of season 11. Who knew? Uh, but meanwhile, I will say goodbye and thank you to Jimmy. See you next time. And I will say goodbye and thank you to Greg. It's been fun. We'll see you next time. Uh, we'll be back very soon with more podcasting. Goodbye now. 